Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, 2 Kings, chapter 18. Now momentarily we're going to be rereading a goodly portion of 2 Kings 18. So rich is it, not only in Israel's history, but in great and timeless spiritual lessons that seem to be regularly forgotten. Not only by believers, but by the Jews of modern day Israel as well. And let there be no doubt that the weakened state of the modern church is at least partly because of the abandonment of God's word in favor of man-made traditions and glib Christian sayings and especially because the Old Testament where these important God principles are developed and the lessons they teach are recorded have been declared null and void by many influential but misguided Christian leaders. The fifth verse of chapter 18 sums up God's perspective of his new king of Judah, his Kiel, Hezekiah. It says, He put his trust in Adonai, the God of Israel, and after him there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, nor had there been among those before him. For he clung to Adonai. He did not leave off following him, but he obeyed his mitzvot, his commandments, which Adonai had given Moses. So, Adonai was with him. There's scarcely a sharper contrast in the Bible between two individuals, let alone a father and his son, than between Hezekiah and his father, the former king of Judah, Ahaz. And because of Ahaz, Judah had begun to look an awful lot like that northern kingdom, which was now in exile, thanks to the Assyrian Empire. But God, being of unchangeable character, showed great mercy and patience by raising up a far better king for Judah, one that he compared favorably to the greatest king of Israel and the ancestor of the Messiah, King David. Hezekiah was more than a reformer. He was a transformer. So while the first four verses of chapter 18 speak about how he reformed the religion of Judah by destroying the pagan idols and tearing down the Asherah trees and essentially abolishing idol worship in his kingdom, the next several verses speak about how he transformed the nation of Judah's military and government and civil society into one that could better deal with the geopolitical realities of that era. And those realities were that Assyria was the greatest empire that the world had ever known up to that time and that Judah was squarely in their sights. Apparently, Hezekiah sensed that while prayer and obedience to God and attending to spiritual matters was his first and foremost duties, there was also a time of trouble just ahead. And concrete action was needed, not merely pious passivity 
or wishful thinking. Therefore, he spent the first few years of his reign fortifying his nation's defenses and then preparing for the inevitable war with Assyria. Well, we're going to spend considerable time with this chapter because we're going to be reading extensively from the book of Second Chronicles that adds much-needed information and perspective to Hezekiah's reign. Now, we're going to get the practical side and the heavenly side of the story. Now, let me remind you that we're at a point of around 700 B.C. And therefore, we're about one century from Judah suffering a similar fate as their long-lost brothers of the Ten Tribes. So, as marvelously successful and righteous as King Hezekiah's reign was going to be, it was but the proverbial finger in the dike that could only hold back the floodwaters of divine judgment, but temporarily. So, let's reread a portion of 2 Kings 18. Let's start at verse 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 423. 2 Kings 18, starting at verse 5. We're going to go 5 through 16. He put his trust in Adonai, the God of Israel. After him there was no one like him, him among all the kings of Judah, nor had there been among those before him. For he clung to Adonai and did not leave off following him, but he obeyed his mitzvot, which Adonai had given Moshe. So Adonai was with him. Whenever he went out to battle, he did well. He rebelled against the king of Asher and refused to be his vassal. He drove the Philistines back to Gaza, and he laid waste to their territory from the watchtower to the fortified city. It was in the fourth year of King Hizkiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, advanced against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, they captured it. That is, Samaria was captured in the sixth year of Hizkiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. The king of Asher carried Israel away captive to uh, uh, Asher and settled them in Halach, in Habor, on the Gozan River, and in the cities of the Medes. This happened because they did not heed the voice of Adonai, their God, but they violated his covenant. Everything that Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered them to do, they would neither hear it nor do it. In the fourteenth year of King Hizkiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, advanced against all of the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I've done wrong. If you'll go away from me, I'll pay whatever penalty you impose upon me. The king of Asher imposed on Hezekiah a penalty of ten tons of silver and a ton of gold. Hizkiah gave him all the silver that could be found in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace. It was at that time that Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the sanctuary of Adonai and gave the doorpost which Hezekiah king of Judah himself had overlaid and gave it to the king of Asher. Verse 7 explains that Hezekiah inherently knew that the kingdom of God could not coexist under the rule of a foreign occupier, which by definition gave their allegiance to a different god or gods. 
Hezekiah's father Ahaz had agreed to turn Judah over to Assyria in exchange for Assyria allowing him to retain his title as king of Judah. That was the rather standard vassal arrangement for that era. Thus we read of Hezekiah informing the king of Assyria that no further tribute was going to be paid. This was rebellion. But in addition to this direct act of rebellion, Hezekiah also took control of Philistia. Why was he interested in Philistia? Because at this time, Philistia was under the rule of Assyria. And Assyria needed the Philistine territory because of an important highway that linked Mesopotamia to Egypt via the, by means of the Via Maris highway. And although I just told you that Judah was squarely in, Israel, in uh, rather Assyria's sights, it was mostly because of Assyria's aspirations to conquer Egypt. And the fertile and productive land that was located between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, which was essentially Judah, was vital for Assyria to prosecute a war against Egypt. Philistia gave Assyria a needed seaport and a, high, and a highway. But they would also need the resources of Judah to provision a large expeditionary force that would necessarily be in the field for several years. Wars of this kind took a long time to resolve. By rebelling and then taking possession of Philistia, King Hiskiao was denying Syria, Assyria both. He knew Assyria wouldn't stand still for that very long. So he sought strategic alliances as well. By denying Assyria the land route that they needed to attack Egypt, suddenly Egypt and Judah found themselves as uneasy partners against the Assyrian war machine. Well then in verse 9, the narrative takes a step back to explain that the siege of Assyria against Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom, and that this was what finally resulted in the exile of the ten northern tribes, that had all actually begun in the fourth year of King Hiskiao's reign. Thus, this latest king of Judah was an eyewitness to the destruction and the exile of the northern kingdom. And since prophets like Elijah and Isaiah had warned the northern kingdom about what was coming if they didn't repent, if they didn't change their faithless and idolatrous ways, Hezekiah was well aware of these prophecies and their catastrophic outcome. Notice verse 12 that explains in part Hiskiah's actions. It says this, This happened because they, Israel, did not heed the voice of Adonai their God, but they violated his covenant. Everything that Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered them to do, they would neither hear it nor do it. Twice in this verse, the Hebrew word Shema was used to describe what it is 
that the northern kingdom of the ten tribes did not do in regards to God's commandments given through Moses. That is, they did not do what it is that they had heard. We've discussed this important principle that's contained in the word Shema on numerous occasions. It is fascinating to me that both Jews and Christians declare that the principle of love your God with all your heart, mind, and strength is the basis of even the Ten Commandments. And therefore, it's the common denominator of our faiths. In fact, so recognized is this God principle in Judaism that they have given a formal name to the scripture passage where this principle is presented in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Recall that this passage begins with the words, Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Thus they call it the Shema. I will not relent from chastising the church that in general until recently we have listened to God's words but we've determined not to do God's words. And what this leads to is what is happening now in the postmodern era church. The church, and again in general, not universally, has stopped listening now to God's word. Fine speeches from the pulpit that pull a verse or two or even part of a verse out of context, then it's used to validate some social or religious point of view of the speaker. This is not the same thing as listening to God's word. Reading books about the end times or about heaven or about how to grow a church or about the nature of the human soul or about social justice. That's not the same thing as reading God's word. So the principle is this. Unlike what it might seem, it is not that being deaf to God's word leads to not doing God's word. It is the other way around. In reality, the only people on this planet who are supposed to do God's word are God's chosen and redeemed people. When God's worshipers hear God's words but don't do it, it eventually leads to no longer listening to it. Why is that? Because as James said, even the demons know who God is and what God's principles are. But those who hear God's word and don't do it possess a dead faith. And a dead faith loses interest in even hearing the Lord's word to us. That's exactly what has happened. Hezekiah didn't want the same thing to happen to Judah that happened to Israel. And as the great Hebrew scholar Ebabranel suggests... Assyria was able to sweep to victory not because it was all-powerful, but because the ten tribes and their king had sinned beyond reprieve. So God turned them over to Assyria 
judgment rather than protecting them from conquest as he had up until then. So for Hezekiah, step one was to lead Judah in repentance of their apostasy. And step two was to build up the kingdom's defenses against a formidable Assyrian army that was designed for world domination. Verse 13 proves that Hezekiah had wisdom because just as he had anticipated and prepared for, Assyria finally attacked Judah in retribution and in hopes of recapturing Judah, which would also then return Philistia and the available north-south via Maris Highway to their control. Even though Hezekiah had reformed and transformed the kingdom of Judah back to a strong and a God-fearing nation, when the moment of truth finally arrived, he acted in a way that surprises us. These passages seem to indicate that he panicked. And in a moment of weakness, he reverted to his and to our natural human carnal instincts. His Keyao had reigned in righteousness for 14 years when King Sennacherib began attacking the fortified cities of Judah. And when the large Jewish fortress city of Lachish was surrounded and it was near collapse, it greatly alarmed Hezekiah because it was only a couple of days march from there to Jerusalem. He appears to react by trying to buy his way out of trouble instead of beseeching God. The narrative implies that Hezekiah was thinking that Assyria's forces were much too large and experienced to be defeated by natural means. So he sued for peace in the typical Middle Eastern way of that time. Sennacherib named his price 20,000 pounds of silver and 2,000 pounds of gold. An enormous amount that he probably didn't think Hezekiah could even come up with. However, by emptying the royal treasury, the temple treasury, and even stripping slabs of gold off of the temple doors, the king of Judah was able to meet the demand. But as we're about to see, the king of Assyria was insincere in his demands. And to give in only emboldened him to press for even more. So let's start reading again in chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. <clears throat> From Lachish, the king of Asher sent Tartan, Rav Saras, and Rav Shakeh to King Hizkiyahu in Jerusalem with a large army. They advanced and came to Jerusalem, and upon arrival they came and positioned themselves by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which is by the road to the launderer's field, and they summoned the king. But those answering the call were Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the household, Shebnah, the general secretary, and Yoach, the son of Asaph, the foreign minister. Rav Shekeh addressed them, Tell his Hizkiah, here is what the great king, the king of Asher, says. What makes you so confident? 
Do you think that mere spoken words constitute strategy and strength for battle? In whom then are you trusting when you rebel against me like this? Now look, relying on Egypt's like using a broken stick as a staff. When you lean on it, it punctures your hand. That's what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is like for anyone who puts his trust in him. But if you tell me we trust in Adonai our God, then isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? telling Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? All right, then. Make a wager with my lord, the king of Asher. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find enough riders for them. How then can you repulse even one of my master's lowest-ranked army officers? You're relying on Egypt for chariots and riders. Do you think I have come up to this place to destroy it without Adonai's approval? Adonai said to me, attack this land and destroy it. Eliakim, the son of uh, Hilkiah, Shebna, and Yoach said to Rabshakeh, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't, don't speak with us in Hebrew while the people on the wall are listening. But Rabshakeh answered them, Did my master send me to deliver my message just to your master and yourselves? Didn't he send me to address the men sitting on the wall who, like you, are going to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And then Yavshakeh stood up and speaking loudly in Hebrew said, Hear what the great king, the king of Asher, says. This is what the king says. Don't let his Hizkiah deceive you, because he won't be able to save you from the power of the king of Assyria. And don't let Hezekiah make you trust in Adonai, by saying Adonai will surely save us. This city will not be given over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Asher says. Make peace with me. Surrender to me. Then every one of you can eat from his vine and fig tree and drink the water in his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land with grain and wine, a land with bread and vineyards, a land with olive trees and honey, so that you can live and not die. So don't listen to his cow. He's only deluding you when he says, Adonai will save us. Has any god of any nation ever saved his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of uh, Sepharim, Hena, and Ibah? Did they save Samaria from my power? Where is the god of any country that has saved his country from my power so that Adonai be able to save Jerusalem from my power? But the people kept still. They didn't answer him so much as a word. For the king's order was, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the household, Shebna, the general secretary, and Yoach, the son of Asaph, the foreign minister, went to his Hizkiah with their clothes torn and reported to him what Rav Shekeh had said. <clears throat> well, the king of Assyria was apparently present with his troops as they were laying siege to Lachish. And when word came to him that King Hezekiah was willing to admit his sin in rebelling and to meet Sennacherib's outrageous price of 10 tons of silver and a ton of gold, he sent a delegation of underlings to meet with the Hebrew king with yet another set of demands in hand. And let's not misunderstand the use of the word sin in relation to King Hiskiel pronouncing in verse 14 that he had sinned, or like in the complete Jewish Bible, done wrong against the king of Assyria by rebelling against him. 
This was just a common way of speaking. Further, in no way had Hezekiah ever agreed to, to be a serious vassal. His father had done that. And it was usual that when the king of a vassal state vacated the throne and a new king took his place, that a new agreement had to be reached. There is no evidence from Assyrian or biblical records that such a thing had occurred. So it's not as though Hezekiah had vowed in God's name to be a vassal to Assyria and then reneged on the deal. Thus there was no wrongdoing against Assyria. Certainly no trespass against Jehovah was involved. But in order to get a fuller picture of what happened next, turn your Bibles to Second, King, uh, Second Chronicles, rather Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. We're going to read it all. Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page twelve sixteen. Second Chronicles chapter 32. After these events and this faithfulness of his chaos, Sennacherib king of Assyria came, invaded Judah, and besieged the fortified cities, thinking that he would break in and capture them. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to attack Jerusalem, he consulted his leading men and military advisors about sealing off the water in the springs outside of the city. And after gaining their support, a large crowd was gathered to block all of the springs and the stream flowing through the countryside, and they reasoned, why should the kings of Assyria come and find an ample supply of water? Then taking courage, he rebuilt all the broken sections of the wall, raised towers on it, built another wall outside that, strengthened the Milo in the city of David, and made a large quantity of spears and shields. He appointed military commanders over the people. He gathered them before him in the open space at the city gate and spoke these words of encouragement to them. Be strong. Take courage. Don't be afraid or distressed on account of the king of Assyria or all the horde he brings with him. For the one uh, with us is greater than the one with him. He has human strength, but we have Adonai our God to help us and fight our battles. The people took heart at the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And after this, while Sennacherib and all of his army were besieging Lachish, he sent his envoys to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah king of Judah, and to all Judah who was there in Jerusalem with this message. This is what king, uh, Sennacherib king of Asher says. What gives you confidence that you can endure a siege against Jerusalem? Hasn't Hezekiah deluded you? Isn't he condemning you to death by starvation and thirst when he says Adonai our God will save us from the king of Assyria? Isn't this the same Hezekiah who removed your God's high places and altars and ordered Judah and Jerusalem to worship before one altar and offer sacrifices only on it? Don't you realize what I and my ancestors have done to all the peoples of the other countries? Were the gods of these nations able to do a thing to rescue their country from me? Who of all the gods of those nations that my ancestors completely destroyed was able to rescue his people from me? How then will your God rescue you from me? Don't let Hezekiah mislead you or delude you this way. Don't believe him. No god of any nation or kingdom has ever been able to rescue his people from me or my ancestors. How much less will your god rescue you from me? 
His invoice kept on speaking against Adonai, God, and against his servant Hezekiah. And he also wrote a letter insulting Adonai, the God of Israel, and speaking against him. It said, Just as the God of, of the nations of the other countries could not rescue the people from me, likewise, likewise his chaos God will not rescue his people from me. They were shouting loudly in the language of the Judeans to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall in order to terrify them, make them fearful so that they could capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem in the same way as about the gods of the other peoples of the earth, which are merely human artifacts. But because of this, Hiskiah the king and Yeshayahu, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amotz, prayed and they cried out to heaven. Then Adonai sent an angel who cut down the valiant warriors, the leaders and the officers in the king of Assyria's camp so that he had to return shamefaced to his own country. When he entered the house of his God, his own sons, whom he himself had fathered, put him to death with the sword there. In this way, Adonai rescued Hezekiah and those living in Jerusalem from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from everyone caring for them in every aspect. Many people brought gifts to Adonai in Jerusalem and items of value to his Kael, king of Judah, so that from then on he was regarded highly by all the nations. And around this time Hezekiah became ill to the point of death. But he prayed to Adonai who answered him, giving him a sign. However, Hezekiah did not respond commensurately with the benefit done for him because he had grown proud. Thus he brought anger on himself and on Judah and Jerusalem as well. But Hezekiah then then humbled himself for his pride, both he and the people living in Jerusalem, so that Adonai's anger did not strike them during Hezekiah's lifetime. Hezekiah had vast riches and great honor. He provided himself with storage places for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, all kinds of valuable articles. Also storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine, and olive oil. Stalls for all kinds of livestock. Pens for the flocks. He provided cities for himself. Purchased flocks and herds in abundance for God had made him extremely wealthy. It was the same Hiskiao who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and diverted the water straight down on the west side of the city of David. Hiskiao succeeded in all that he did. However, in the matter of the ambassadors from the prince of Babel, who sent to him to learn of the marvel that had taken place in the land, God left him by himself in order to test him so that he might know everything that was in his heart. Other activities of Hezekiah and his good deeds are recorded in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amotz, and in the annals of the kings of Judah and Israel. Then Hezekiah slept with his ancestors. They buried him by the path leading up to the tombs of the descendants of David. All Judah and the people living in Jerusalem honored him when he died, after which Manasseh his son took his place as king. It appears from these verses that while Hezekiah indeed offered a bribe to Sennacherib to stop attacking Judah, and that in 2 Kings 18, it leaves us wondering that perhaps he had done a cowardly, if not a bad thing, in paying off the Assyrian king with gigantic amounts of gold and silver, some of it from the temple treasury. We now understand from Second Chronicles 32 that at least part of his reaction was strategic. 
in order to buy more time to prepare. And perhaps the most important thing that Hezekiah wanted to do with that time was to deny the Assyrian army a water source as they surrounded Jerusalem. And at the same time to protect that water source and keep it available to the besieged city residents and the military defenders. Thus he began a project to not only fortify and expand Jerusalem's defensive walls, but he ordered that an impressive water diversion project be undertaken and that it must happen in an impossibly short period of time. The main feature of that water project is a marvel of ancient engineering called Hezekiah's Tunnel, located in what we now know as the City of David. It was rediscovered in the mid-1800s by a Bible scholar and an archaeologist named Edward Robinson. However, it took several more decades for the academic world to finally concede that this water tunnel was the project that is the subject of 2 Chronicles 32. One reason for this reluctance to agree with Robinson was that it seemed impossible that such a project could be built in 700 BC, particularly with such precision and so quickly. In fact, excellent, reliable Bible commentary, uh, commentaries written by such notables as Keel and DeLeach and Alfred Edersham were still guessing that a different water channel that was actually up a little bit higher in the Holy City, nearby what is now called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or perhaps yet another channel that was discovered that goes under the Tyropian Valley just to the west side of the Ophel and the Temple Mount, that perhaps one of those was the ones that, that he had ordered built. However, the actual one turns out to be quite an engineering marvel. It was as it was carved underground through bedrock. It's about 600 yards long, six football fields in length. It was dug from both ends, and the workers were somehow able to make it neat in the middle. That's not speculation. An inscription was actually found carved inside the tunnel that explained that's how they did it. But the method they devised to allow the two excavations to meet precisely in the middle is still debated. I've walked through that narrow serpentine tunnel on several occasions. And at the bottom of it is the famous Pool of Siloam, itself only recently discovered in 2004. The bottom line is that the combination of this tunnel and the Siloam Pool, which was kind of a reservoir to hold the water that flowed through the tunnel, was completely inside the defensive walls of the city of David. Once dug, the waters of the Gihon Spring were dammed up and then diverted to the tunnel. And instead of running down the Gihon Valley to the bottom, mostly outside the city walls, it went down into the protected pool of Siloam. Now, this didn't solve the starvation problem the besieged residents would face, but it did solve the number one problem, which was a nearly unlimited water source. 
and it kept the Assyrian army from having access to it for themselves. And since sieges could take from months or even years to come to a conclusion, a well-defended and provisioned walled city could often outlast the enemy army, especially when inclement weather and a scarcity of water was an issue, and that is the case with Jerusalem. Now, 2 Chronicles 32 also explains that King Hezekiah was anything but afraid and timid. It turns out that it wasn't fear that drove him to pay enormous sums of precious metals to the king of Assyria. In fact, it's recorded that he gathered his military and civic leaders together. He told them to have courage and not to fear the Assyrians because the God of Israel and not the size of the enemy forces is going to determine the outcome. Oh, if only modern Israel had a Hezekiah to lead them. They still believe that their own military might, their advanced weapons, their cunning strategies, that's the answer to all their problems. If only they would turn to God, to His Son Yeshua, fall on their knees and exclaim as one, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. If only they would do that, then they would see miracles like the one that Hezekiah would soon witness. Well, back to King, 2 Kings 18. In verse 17, we meet the delegation that Sennacherib sent to powwow with Hezekiah. It was an offensive display of arrogance that some lesser government officials would demand an audience with Judah's king but Hezekiah wisely countered it. If Sennacherib was sending envoys to speak for him, then Hezekiah would send his own envoys to hear them. So here are three Assyrian fellows called Tartan, Rav Saris, and Rav Shekeh. These are not their names. These are their titles. Tartan means viceroy. So this was probably Sennacherib's second in command. Rav Saras means chief of the eunuchs, which mostly has to do with the king's household. Rav Shekeh means something like chief baker, but probably was indicating that he was Sennacherib's chief steward. Okay. These men made up the upper echelon of the king of Assyria's royal court. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this incident, and he singles out Rav Shekeh, because he was the leader, at least he's the one who did all the talking. Let's just take a quick peek at Isaiah chapter 36. We'll just read 10 verses. Isaiah chapter 36, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 490. We'll just read the first 10 verses. It was in... The fourteenth year of King Hizkiah that Sennacherib king of Asher advanced again all, against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. From Lachish, the king of Asher sent Rav Shekeh to Hizkiah in Jerusalem with a large army. He positioned himself by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which is by the road to the launderer's field. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
who was in charge of the household, Shebna, the general secretary, and Yoach, the son of Asaf, the foreign minister, went out to meet him. Rav Shekeh addressed them. Tell Hezekiah, here is what the great king of Asher says. What makes you so confident? I say, do mere words constitute strategy and strength for battle? In whom then are you trusting when you rebel against me like this? Look. Relying on Egypt is like using a broken stick as a staff. When you lean on it, it punctures your hand. That's what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is like for anyone who puts his trust in him. But if you tell me we trust in Adonai our God, then isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, telling Judah and Jerusalem you must worship before this altar? All right, then, make a wager with my lord, the king of Asher. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find enough riders for them. How then can you repulse even one? of my master's lowest-ranked army officers, yet you're relying on Egypt for chariots and riders. Do you think I've come up against this land to destroy it without Adonai's approval? Adonai said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Sennacherib's message was one of great impudence, and it was designed to shame King Hezekiah and the people of Judah. But there was truth in it. As Alfred Edersham so rightly noticed, rarely perhaps was there an occasion on which faith in the unseen was put to a severe test than in the conference between the leaders of the Assyrian army and the representatives of King Hezekiah. In other words, here's where the rubber meets the road. Faith in God is wonderful. It's inspiring to sing about it. It's rather easy to maintain until one is severely tested. This particular test was one of life and death. Not just of Hezekiah's life, but of an entire kingdom's existence as a sovereign Hebrew nation. According to earthly eyes and logic, the situation was just as hopeless as these representatives of King Sennacherib accurately portrayed to the three envoys of Judah and to all the common folks sitting around, standing nearby. The Assyrian army simply had not known defeat. They were well-equipped, well-trained, large in number, and expert in conquest. They had already taken on more formidable foes than Judah, and they'd won handily. But here, there is yet another great spiritual lesson just under the surface. Hezekiah had been ruling for 14 years as a righteous king who had brought his kingdom back from apostasy to a proper worship and reverence of God. So why... Would God allow Assyria to invade now? And for Hezekiah to be humiliated? This issue has puzzled the rabbis and the sages of old. And they've come up with various solutions. Radak and Abarbanel say that this was not Hezekiah's failure, but the peoples that God was reacting against. Other sages agree that this invasion, quite interestingly was all part of Jehovah's plan of redemption. And that essentially, catch this, the rabbi said, this was the war of Gog and Magog against Jerusalem. 
and that King Sennacherib was intended to represent King Gog and King Hezekiah was intended to represent the Messiah. Now, I think Abarbanel is the closest to exposing the principle that's being taught, but he didn't go far enough. Hezekiah indeed was not necessarily at fault, but the kingdom of Judah in general had for a very long time erred to the point of unfaithfulness towards God. The temple operated in an off-and-on fashion. There were high places built all over the hills of Judah. Idol worship was tolerated. Even though under Hezekiah's leadership, the citizens of Judah had righted the ship in repentance and struck out on a straight path of righteousness, thus they had every reason to expect some level of help and deliverance from the Lord and acknowledgement of their sincere change of heart and change of behavior, still, there would necessarily remain the residue of consequence for their past sins. That they were going to have to suffer. I think if one has lived long enough, walked with God close enough, the truth of this principle is evident enough. Despite, perhaps, an extended time of being faithful and obedient to our Lord, if our past life was full of sin and rebellion and foolishness, we shall not escape its effects in this life or on this earth. Our redeemed lives will indeed be eligible for God's mercy and His favor, but we can also expect trouble that results from our failures of the past. Some that we might call natural effects. Some that can be nothing other than God's justice being meted out upon us. Christ did not come to save our fleshly lives by being hung up on that execution pole. His sacrifice was not intended to give us a reprieve from the just earthly consequences of our past or present evil behavior, although I admit that does happen occasionally. His sacrifice had to do with the pardoning of the curse of the law upon us, also in the New Testament called the wages of sin. The curse, the wages of sin, is eternal death. But such pardon is only available for those who sincerely trust in Him and make Him Lord of our life. The law and its righteousness were not abolished, as Yeshua so clearly stated in the Sermon on the Mount. Only the eternal effects of breaking the law were dealt with. Well, the three representatives who King Hezekiah sent to receive the Assyrian envoys were named Eliakim, Shebna, and Yoach. Here's what they heard. The Assyrians wanted to know why it was that Hezekiah thought that by making all of these preparations for war that it was going to do him or Judah any good. What exactly was the source of Judah's confidence that it could ward off the unstoppable Assyrian forces? Was it brilliant words of motivation to the troops? How about an astounding battle strategy? Could it be that Hezekiah was relying on Egypt to come to his aid? 
Oh, it couldn't be, could it? That Hezekiah was trusting in Israel's God. Because that would be the most foolish thing of all possibilities. After all, hadn't King Hezekiah actually insulted his own God by breaking down the high places where his people had been worshipping the God of Israel and instead forcing them to worship in only one place, a place that Hezekiah personally preferred, the temple in Jerusalem? In other words, Rav Sheke, being primarily familiar with the golden calf cult of the former northern kingdom, thought that it was good and right that the citizens of Judah would have their own personal high places and altars of sacrifice. Therefore, Hezekiah ordering them torn down was born of a selfish motive of some sort that allowed him to more fully control his people. And while it might please him, what God would ever be pleased with having all of his many high places torn down? That's what he was thinking. So with the obvious conclusion that Judah stands no chance against Assyria, Rav Shekeh presents an offer from his king to Hezekiah. The siege of Jerusalem wouldn't happen if Hezekiah would agree to forward some kind of a special surety that would forfeit, be forfeit if he again rebelled against Sennacherib. Now, the complete Jewish Bible and some other Bibles translate verse 23 a little bit differently. And they have this offer as being a wager, a bet. In other words, that this offer wasn't real, it was just but a diplomatic game, mocking Hezekiah that the king of Assyria would give him 2,000 horses if Hezekiah could present 2,000 men who were competent riders. The assumption being that Judah didn't have 2,000 competent riders. But that doesn't seem right to me. The Hebrew word used here is arob, arob. And it ought to be translated as surety or guarantee. In fact, it is nowhere else. That word a robe is nowhere else used in the Bible to mean a wager or a gambling bet. Though there was for certain sarcasm in Sennacherib offering to give Hezekiah 2,000 horses if he would put up the requested surety. But he said he didn't think Judah had 2,000 men who could ride him anyway. In fact, says Rav Shekeh in the next verse, to emphasize just how weak and small Judah's army was in comparison, the lowliest officer in the Assyrian army commanded 2,000 horsemen. To this point, there is much truth to Rav Shekeh's rant and indictment towards Hezekiah and Judah, even if it was wrapped up in a great deal of hyperbole. But now he crosses the line. Now he says he is Jehovah's agent and that Jehovah will lead Assyria to victory over Judah. El-Yakim, Shebna, and Yoak were becoming concerned that the common folks of Judah who were gathered all around and listening to Rav Shekeh, that they would become afraid and they'd lose heart. So they pleaded with Rav Shekeh to speak in Aramaic instead of Hebrew, because they understood Aramaic, but people didn't. Rav Shekeh let it be known. It was his intent that the people hear. He wanted them to hear just what they're in for if their king defies the will of the king of Assyria, because it was they who would suffer the worst 
and the longest and suffer the most degradation of a siege. Next week we'll continue chapter 18 and move on to chapter 19.